Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, June 6th, 2021. 2021 and we are talking about well we're back yes something new we were on vacation we took a break we had a special episode hope everyone enjoyed it our question bin yes was was just in front of us you just put it somewhere it was a lot of fun and we're excited to be back live on the mic and it was a holiday bin it did end up being as such yes (laughs) if you recall anyway Let's start us off with show ratings and begin with which shows you looked at today. So I looked at this week and I looked at Fox News Sunday. And what would you rate those two programs? This week, I think I'm going to say was a four. Mm, okay. So uh, there were some. So that's a that's a good. A good. Yeah, it was a good show. Some thought-provoking segments that got me thinking, which I always appreciate. There was some kind of like blah questions or interviews, but nothing that like made me angry. So overall, I think worth your time. So that's a four. And for Fox News Sunday, I think I'm going to give it a three. The interviews... So just okay. Yeah. The interviews were very long, like their two main interviews that Chris Wallace had. And then his panel went on for, I don't know, I felt like everything just dragged. (laughs) And not everything was worthwhile. So a three for Fox News Sunday. Brendan, how about you? So I took a look at State of the Union, Face the Nation, and Meet the Press. And I guess I will begin with the low going high there. I will give Face the Nation a three, just okay. There's First of all, there's just too much with these old national security voices particularly Republican national security voices that are just showing up on the shows. Well, a couple weeks ago, I complained about Robert Gates, Mm -hmm. former Secretary of Defense, being on the show for what felt like a 35 minute interview. And today it was Condoleezza Rice, where it was, you know, broken up, where there were a few bits in the first half and then more in the second half as if we needed more. It's like she has been out of power for a very long time. Very, very long time. So it's And just, it's not like they do that with Democratic establishment voices, right? Tell us what's happening in the Democratic Party. What are trends that you're seeing? What are, you know, like... Well, this is the, within the guise of national security, but these are people who served Republican administrations, are avowed Republicans. Now, Bob Gates did serve President Obama. Obama. But I'm saying it's not like they well. revere yes. necessarily yes. A, like old but, school Democratic power players so to speak and give them this same type of like lengthy but more importantly they have a set worldview that is a political and b out of date so come on people and it takes up time more importantly it takes up time time for example that could have been spent on the interview with joe manchin senator joe manchin that critical vote in the senate he was interviewed but it was a very short interview and i feel like there was an implicit 
or I should say explicit acknowledgement of how short the interview was by John Dickerson when he ended by saying, oh, the sands have run out of the hourglass and we are out of time. That's kind of literally the phrase that he used to end the interview. But I would have loved to see that interview longer and Condi Rice shorter. And as a result, the interview with Manchin was valuable, but I really wish that there was more focus on a single theme. Instead, it bounced around from topic to topic. And I wish someone would finally ask Joe Manchin the question I wanted to hear asked of Manchin again and again, which is, is policy important to you, Joe Manchin, at all? Or are you just interested in the appearance of bipartisanship? Because it sounds like he seems perfectly happy with nothing ever getting passed in the Senate, or maybe one thing getting passed, like, I don't know, a proclamation that parades are good and hooray for parades, like meaningless bipartisan legislation seems more important to him than actually any policy whatsoever. So I'd love for someone to ask him that question outright, because it's the sense I am getting from interviews like this. But all of this was redeemed by an excellent segment with Scott Gottlieb. And by the way, Gottlieb was not only back, he was back in the studio. They were in studio, in studio interviews today, including with Gottlieb and with Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation. Okay, that was a lot about Face the Nation. I'll be faster. State of the Union was four. It was a good episode overall. Lots of important issues covered. You'll hear a number of them highlighted today by me in this show. And there was an excellent closing by Jake Tapper, reflecting on recent statement by former Vice President Pence, saying that he had spoken with former President Trump a few times since Trump was out of office, and they just agreed to disagree on the issue of Pence's own life being threatened at the January 6th insurrection. And Jake Tapper essentially saying, there is no agree to disagree on an issue like that. Give me a break. And I agree with him there. That was his outrage segment. Meet the Press, five. This was a very good episode. Ooh, a five today. Yes, a very good episode because it had a focus. The focus was stated at the beginning and it was covered throughout the episode in many, many different ways. And the focus was on cybersecurity, particularly the ransomware attacks that have happened again and again. So I want to make a note here that a very good episode, this is very good in our new rating system. Very good. It is very good, but that doesn't mean it gets 100%, right? I do have to ping the episode for not having more actual experts on cybersecurity on. There were just a lot of political voices. And when you do an episode like this, experts are important. It would have been great, for example, if you didn't necessarily have time to interview experts, at least invite some experts into the panel. We didn't have that. Uh, And I do have to ping the show for shamelessly plugging Chris Matthews' book at the end. Literally, like the last sentence was, and don't forget about Chris Matthews' book. And it's like, what? That did not feel like news to me. I understand Matthews might have a book. I understand there might be an implicit decision to help him plug it, but it's up to Matthews to plug it once he gets that airtime. And if Matthews doesn't, then he doesn't. That's just how it goes. What a journey there. Yes. Quite the journey. But I'm happy that you got a five in there. Good for your Sunday morning viewing experience. Yeah, three, four, five. No ones or twos today. Yeah, overall pretty high rankings. Naomi, do you have a quality or a questionable? Yeah, so I have a quality moment. There's a hint, a smidge of a questionable tied to a little bit of this. So overall on this week, there was an interesting choice to explore or look at the mayor's race in New York City, which 
Interesting. Interesting. I hope Maybe they... Maybe because they're based in New York in their and studio? Everything East Coast is so important. I hope they... <laughs> I couldn't think of a city less important to us last week than New York City. <laughs> also less close to us. Yeah, we were six <laughs> hours away. Six hour time zone difference. So maybe they will explore something in, I don't know, the fifth largest economy in the world, which if you didn't know, is the state of California or LA or Chicago or Miami, statehood in DC. Any of these things are interesting local-ish politics. Anyway, this is supposed to be a quality. My quality is that after John Carl, one little thing, John Carl, they like multiple times said he's the chief Washington correspondent and then he did a segment on the New York City mayor race. That is kind of funny. I just found it super humorous. But I assumed it was George doing this segment. No, it was John Carl like kind of made this package. But after John Carl's segment, there was a do you buy that from Nate Silver, obviously. And it was talking about rank voting, which is going to be done in this next election in New York City, which will impact the mayor race. And it's just kind of like fascinating political nerd stuff. And so I really appreciated the explainer and the effort that went into explaining how rank voting will impact the race. And as we said, voters in New York City will encounter a new type of ballot in this race. Instead of voting for only one candidate, they can rank up to five in order of preference. So what determines the winner? Could rank choice voting mean that the person who gets the most votes won't actually become mayor? 538's Nate Silver analyzes. I'm going to mix it up and give you the answer right up front. I buy that rank choice voting could change the outcome. A recent public opinion strategies poll found entrepreneur Andrew Yang initially had a 19 to 18 lead over Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. The poll, however, simulated the ranked choice process. In New York City, voters can rank up to five candidates. If nobody receives over 50% of first choice votes, the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated and those votes default to the next choice. The process is repeated until a winner emerges. In that poll, for example, Adams eventually pulled ahead of Yang 52-48 by picking up more second and third choice support. I know that sounds complicated, but it's really affected the candidate's strategy. Instead of appealing to just one constituency, you want to have broad-based support. So it could help someone like Yang, who has tried to cultivate support among everyone from Asian Americans to Orthodox Jews. It also explains his silly stunts on Twitter like ranking his favorite restaurants. He just wants you to remember his name so that he's somewhere in your top five. And it seems to be working. Yang is still getting about twice as much Google search traffic in New York as other frontrunners, like Adams and former Sanitation Department Commissioner Catherine Garcia. Another theory, it could help a progressive candidate like civil rights lawyer Maya Wiley because the progressive vote is splintered. In the public opinion strategies poll, for example, she gained a lot of support when another progressive city comptroller, Scott Stringer, was eliminated. My advice is simply to make sure that you know all five of your choices. Studies show that anywhere from 10 to around 25% of voters in ranked choice elections don't fill out their entire ballot. If you do that, you could be throwing away your chance to determine New York City's next mayor. Going to be an interesting experiment. Simple, but effective and comprehensive. I, I thought it was well done. Yeah, I agree. I I would like to see a more comprehensive discussion of ranked choice voting, the history, the fact that it isn't just something that New York City has invented, but lives in other places. I understand that. I mean, this is like a do you buy that, right? Just a thing. It's not like a full explainer on ranked choice voting, but they could have sped through it and they explained it instead. 
Yeah, I, I really liked this. I mean, I learned something here beyond the specifics of this race that I hadn't really been thinking about as it comes to ranked choice voting. And that is the burden it puts on the voter, right? Like in the past, I've thought of it as a very positive thing. It could invite more parties into our system, which could be a really good thing. It could encourage people to look for more support and do less negative campaigning because you don't want to alienate voters who vote for other candidates. However, yes, it does, when you think about it, put a burden on the voter to know a lot more because they're going to be voting for more than one person. And as he said there at the end, most people don't fill out their entire... Well, not most, 10 to 25%. Oh, is that right? Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, good point. But still... Still quite a bit of people. Based on what? Right? Like, what, what, what do you... You have to be very knowledgeable to know not only the candidate that you like, but the candidate you want to put second or third or fourth. It's tough. It's tricky, but I think it's worth it. And I'm looking forward to seeing how how voters felt about it. Brendan, what's your questionable, maybe a smidge of quality? Well, on second thought, you know, the questionable isn't all that questionable that I have. I, I did kind of cheat and have both. But I do want to focus... <laughs> I do want to focus on the quality today. And that is the segment with Scott Gottlieb, as I mentioned. Now, he doesn't fall as neatly into the two topics I wanted to cover later on in the show, but what he did talk about was really, really valuable. And it was more information about the origins of COVID-19. If you'll remember, way back in the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, there were questions about whether the virus might have started at the lab in Wuhan that actually did work on viruses. It's like, oh, wow, it started in Wuhan, and maybe it started at the lab that's in Wuhan. Now, it's important to remember Wuhan is, I don't know, about the size of New York City. It's a massive city. It's not like it's just one small little town that has a lab. It's It's got a lot of stuff in it. But there's been a lot of traction recently to the idea that it may truly have started in this lab. And in John Dickerson's interview with Scott Gottlieb, they went into this topic in very interesting detail. And there are two points here that I want to highlight. The first is the point that Scott Gottlieb is making and that he started making in the last few weeks about how we need to look in the future at pandemics and the risk for pandemics as a national security issue and not just a science or medical issue. But I think the broader issue here for me is that we look at these things through the lens of science Um, And we don't necessarily look at it through the lens of national security. And a scientific mindset looks at the virus and the virus's behavior and its sequence and draws a conclusion. A national security assessment looks at that as one piece of evidence, but then looks at the behavior of the Chinese government, looks at the behavior of the lab, looks at other evidence around the lab, including the infections that we now know took place. And that changes the overall assessment. So the virologists who are now still focused on saying, we don't think this was a lab source, they're still, I think, looking at this through the lens of what does the sequence look like? What does the virus look like? That is just one piece of evidence. And I think this is partly why these kinds of assessments need to be in the hands of the national security apparatus, not just the scientific community. And the specific point he was referencing there about the science, what the science says was about virologists looking at the virus and saying, hey, it looks like this virus, when you look at the sequence of it, that, you know, the, like the gene sequence of the virus itself, it appears that the virus could have happened naturally, could have occurred naturally. 
But Gottlieb is saying, look, there's all this other evidence that it didn't happen naturally. And there's also, as I've seen Gottlieb talk about in other places, something missing in that, which is the animal that it would have transferred from to humans. We still don't have that animal. It's never been discovered. So there's a lot now on the uh, on the side of it started at this lab. But this point that Gottlieb makes is actually, I think, something that we can think of even more broadly, because there has been such a narrow focus on the science, what the scientists say, or what this doctor says, or what the CDC says, and not necessarily on as Gottlieb says here, the national security implications, but also the public health implications, the political implications, the mental health implications, the economic implications of the decisions that were made around this virus. There were so many decisions being made in the last 15 months solely from the perspective of the best possible health outcome without recognition of behavioral economics, the way people make choices, the impact on our economy, the impact on our political system. Like so many of these decisions were just health decisions. And it reminds me when all decisions are based on a single set of expertise, for example, a health set of expertise, then everything is absolute. There's an absolutism to it, right? If you ask a health expert, what should I eat? They're always going to say, only eat the healthiest food ever, right? Yeah. If you ask them, what's the, what's the healthiest decision here? Oh, we'll choose the healthiest food. Yes, but that might be unreasonable. Sometimes someone wants to have a little piece of chocolate or someone wants to have a steak, right? There's an absolutism there. It's kind of like the lawyer who says, you know what, let's have no risk. Just have no risk at all, right? Let's, let's reduce our risk to zero by not doing anything. And that's kind of what we did with this with this COVID situation. There was a zero risk approach because it was so much in the hands of the health community, not so much in the hands of people who need to take other things into consideration. Naomi, you're looking at me very skeptically. I don't think health officials are absolutist. And I think the health messaging absolutely was and that there wasn't a sophisticated approach in the public health messaging, but I don't think public health officials and doctors as an industry are absolute in their advice. I think there is always a range of what is sustainable, what makes sense for you, what is like the risks and benefits for any medical health decision that you have going on in your life. Ideally, but what we saw in this pandemic was a level of absolutism, not just in the messaging, but also in the policy. You you said health officials are absolutist in their, like it wasn't framed just in COVID. It was like all doctors are absolute. So I just... I just want to clarify that they're... Yes, you're right. And I don't believe that all health officials are absolutists. <laughs> I was being healthcare. too absolutist in my <laughs> Criticism brush. of absolutism. Yes. But in general, I think... Do you understand what I'm saying? I though? do. In talking specifically about COVID, I think there was a lack of nuance and a lack of faith in the average American, in the average health consumer to be able to make the best decisions that they can. What I would have liked to have seen is just leaning on more experts, not just health experts in the crafting of policy and the messaging. And it seems like we leaned so much just on epidemiologists and health experts. But 
I want to highlight one final thing that was really interesting in this interview, and this was a conversation point when John Dickerson asked Gottlieb exactly how the virus could have potentially emerged from a lab. Let me ask you about this term gain of function. We've heard that come up in this, that gain of function research was going on at the lab and that that is somehow connected to the U.S. government or even Dr. Anthony Fauci. What's your assessment of that? Well, look, I I don't think that um, gain-of-function research, if this did come out of a lab, so big if, it doesn't necessarily need to be the product of deliberate engineering. If they had a novel strain of coronavirus, and we know that the WIV was the referral center for coronaviruses, so if the Chinese had discovered a novel strain of coronavirus, it probably would have been sent to the WIV for further evaluation. We know that that Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing experiments where they were trying to infect transgenic animals, animals with fully human immune systems, to look at the behavior of coronaviruses in people, in, and, in models. And they do that so that they can fight tougher... Right, uh, so they can figure out how it works, and then they can try to develop drugs and vaccines against it. The process of doing that, the process of growing a vaccine in, in mammalian cell cultures, which is what they would have tried to do if they had a novel strain, and the process of then infecting transgenic animals would make it more humanized. So you don't need to deliberately try to engineer features into the virus to end up with a virus that you might have taken from an animal and then it became more humanized in the process of just experimenting with it. And we know that there were some outbreaks of unusual coronaviruses that the Chinese still haven't released. So I think that's a really good and important point, that this could have happened accidentally at the lab, and it wasn't a sense that the lab was creating, you know, viral weapons that they were, you know, planning to use against others or were making purposefully to infect humans, if, in fact, it did emerge from a lab. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And I think as our understanding of the origins evolve and are hopefully illuminated, I think Gottlieb will continue providing interesting context. Naomi, do you have something you wanted to share about what stood out to you in politics this week? Yeah, so you're not going to believe it. I'm actually excited to try to surprise you. My something in politics is the panel on this week. Oh, my gosh. When you said, I'm not going to believe it, I immediately thought, this is a, you love what Chris Christie did. No, he actually wasn't on the show. Rahm so Emanuel. you love that he, what he did was not go on the show. <laughs> not necessarily. So Rahm Emanuel somehow was able to survive being on the panel this week without Chris Christie. But there were some new voices. And who would have thunk it? When you have new voices, you have new topics, you have new conversations, and... New things to discuss and to learn. Wow. Exactly. So on the panel today was Rahm Emanuel. As I mentioned, Donna Brazil was back on ABC. I don't know if her contract on Fox News got whatever. Interesting. But Donna Brazil was back on ABC News. Also was Jason Riley. He's with the Manhattan Institute, kind of like your Republican, you know, serious Republican think tank voice and then justin amash former libertarian congressman from michigan who was on the shows and kind of a prominent voice between 2016 and 2018 when he was a congressman when he was a congressman correct and i wanted to focus specifically on things that justin amash was talking about you know he's kind of on this quest to build out a formidable third party you know he's trying to make the libertarian party Credible is not the word, not not the only one, but just to have a chance, right, in our national politics. Take a listen to his kind of explanation as to why the two-party system just isn't working anymore. 
the Biden administration's problem is not that they can't get to 60 votes with Republican support. It's that they can't get to 50 votes without Republican support. They don't have their own ducks in a row because moderates like uh, Manchin and Cinema are holding out. So there you hear kind of Justin Amash saying, listen, Democrats aren't doing anything. Republicans don't care about this. And there's a whole list of issues that there's just little movement on. Then he goes on to explain why the legislative process itself, the the process of making our laws and policies is fundamentally broken. Honestly, though, the legislative process is not working at all. You know, I, I just left Congress not long ago. There is no legislative process. I heard the Commerce Secretary say, we've got a legislative process. The legislators are working. They are not working. What we have is a few people, some in the House, some in the Senate. They work on everything. They decide everything. They negotiate directly with the administration. And then it, it gets rammed through with twisting arms. You know, they, they go and they tell the other members of Congress, hey, get on board or else. There is no discovery process in Congress anymore. And this is a real threat to the American people. This is a real problem for America that the way we get legislation done nowadays is we stick a Commerce Secretary in a room with some Senate leader, they decide everything, and then they tell everyone, this is the package, take it or leave it. There is no amendment process. In the House, we haven't amended anything since 2016 on the House floor. There's been no process altogether. And this is really dangerous for the United States of America. This is dangerous for the people. So I'm just going to kind of quickly go through the last clip. And then, I, Brendan, I know you're dying, dying to talk about these clips. <sighs> the last one I wanted to share is Rahm Emanuel's rebuttal against Amash. And he is pretty much defending Democrats, as he is prone to do, and really saying, listen, like, this is kind of how it's always been. And... Good work is still being done. So you, it's a mixed bag. It's not one thing or the other. The second is there is a historical pattern where the legislative process used to be run only by chairman, has now been consolidated in the speaker's office, the majority of his office, and that is the process that both Democrats and Republicans have happened. And it's not just take it or leave it. There's a lot. If you have only four vote majority in the House and no vote, one vote majority in the Senate, it is you cannot run. Well, on a just take it or leave it approach. And there's and I think the speaker has done a tremendous job and the Senate majority leader in garnering the votes necessary to address the challenges. There are more challenges than what the legislative process is up to at this point. But the idea that they're doing nothing or haven't met the challenge, we are a year after, if you take a look at COVID, with the vaccine developed, distributed on a major system, and we're growing at a faster pace economically and wages growing faster than anybody thought just 12 months ago. So the idea that nothing gets done is not accurate, that there are more challenges that Congress is not meeting is also an accurate description. So there you hear Rahm Emanuel pretty much saying, look, some things are still happening. The consolidated power has always been kind of a thing. It's just now in new offices, but it's not accurate the way Justin Amash is talking about. Now, the reason I chose this as my something in politics is mm -hmm. that this is actually like a lengthy discussion about how laws are passed, which voices are respected or heard, and whether or not we think our legislators are robust enough, essentially, in their job, whether we think they are doing enough and not just enough on the issues we care about or to do the things that we want them to do. Although, you know, there are people, particularly Democrats, who I'm sure would make that claim. But just 
we pay them a lot of money to do a job for us, representing us. And do we think the way that they're doing that job is enough? And I don't agree with everything Congressman, former Congressman Justin Amash says, but I, I found his argument compelling in that it's really it sounds very frustrating, probably really boring even sometimes to be a congressman or a congresswoman when you have such little power and such little influence and such little ability to be able to influence legislation. What he doesn't mention are committees. Committees are very important for discovery and influencing and amending bills. I wish he kind of spoke a little bit about the majorities and how that puts a lot of extra influence and power over people that are not represented nationally, right? Just, what was it, like 400,000 people in West Virginia, (laughs) essentially, in how they voted in Joe Manchin. He has so much power in the Senate now. They're not talking like in lots of specific nuance, but I did think it was worthwhile to have a conversation more broadly about, is the Senate, is the House doing enough for us? Yeah, I totally agree with you that this is an important conversation to have and it would be great to have like a whole segment or even a whole show or a recurring segment on what is congress actually doing what are the incentives for the congress people there like why are they there are they there to just are they passionate about a single issue are they there to be big fish in the little pond of their locality and you know, be like, oh, the congressperson's in the district now. Oh, wow, amazing, you know, because they spend time back home. and Or are they mostly just worried about their reelections? And because the moment that you get elected, you have to start raising money on your reelection. Or, or are they there because they want to get another posh job on the board or something afterwards? Like, there's so many questions about, like, what are they actually there for? What do they spend their time on, right? What's rarely talked about here on any of the Sunday shows are the work of their staffs yes. in doing constituent services for people back home in their districts and fielding issues, individual issues that different members of their district have with accessing social services and with dealing with random issues that happen to, to show up at their state or local or federal level. So there's just a lot that isn't talked about that is a part of the job. And what hasn't been talked about here either are committee reports and the staffers that put those together and the influence of those reports and the influence to shape policy. For example, there's a big report coming out on the insurrection that took place on January 6th from two different committees that that we're expecting in the next few weeks here. So anyway, there's a lot that hasn't been talked about. But that should be. And just to clarify or add on, a lot of the work that committees do is also produced by the staff of the committees, not necessarily the staff of the congressmen or women. Yeah, yeah. Very good point. But I think there needs to be some serious discussion as well of what Amash's vision is for a third party. Third parties just don't work in our current system when it's, you know, winner take all. And there are literally rules built into election laws across the states that limit the ability of third parties to have any power. And these are rules that have been put in place by Republicans and Democrats because they don't want additional competition. They don't want third parties. And so that's where things like the ranked choice voting 
could change that. Yeah, absolutely. And Donna Brazil and Rahm Emanuel were definitely the people on the panel saying like, good luck with your third party. Ha ha ha. Like pretty much laughing him off the stage. But I thought like we should be receptive to criticisms of our legislative process, especially from someone who was in it. Right. Yeah. And it's worth kind of listening to reflecting on i thought it was interesting at one point rama Emanuel was like the legislative process works Healthcare took 12 months and we made it happen and i'm like is healthcare obamacare your example of like the legislative process working like i thought it was such like a weak defense by rama Emanuel, where it's like no Republicans voted for it. It's been in and out of courts for literally the last 10 years. It's been super politicized and took a ton of political will and pressure and capital that from the Obama administration. Like, there are so many reasons that the way they went about it did not serve the long-term needs. Right. When you're, when you're defending the institution and how it works by right. talking about something that was so warped by the way the institution didn't work. Right. It's like he literally said the legislative process works. Look at healthcare and what we were able to accomplish. It's like, what? Like it's like someone saying, <laughs> you know, I went to a terrible terrible school, but I guess cuz I'm still alive, it was good because And I'm going to send my kids to it? Like no, like yeah. Just because the healthcare law survived the legislative <laughs> process doesn't mean it was a good legislative exactly. process. Exactly. That's exactly how I felt. So so anyway, new voices, new conversations. I am here for it. What's something in politics that you wanted to discuss? So I just wanted to spend a few moments, not a lot, talking about the infrastructure negotiations that are taking place. On the three shows that I covered, there were a number of conversations on what's going on between the White House and the Biden administration's proposal and the counterproposals and negotiations that are taking place with Republicans in the Senate. Pete Buttigieg was on, as I mentioned earlier. Jennifer Granholm, who is the Secretary of Energy, was also on. And once again, I believe she eclipsed Buttigieg in her ability and focus and detail to talk in talking about this issue. But the first thing I wanted to highlight, actually, was a little aside that Jake Tapper had in the middle of the interview where he decided that the audience needed a little more context in what was going on. This wasn't an introduction. This wasn't a question. This was Jake Tapper pausing and saying, hold on, let me explain this to the viewers. And I thought it was excellent. Just to explain to our, our viewers what's going on. So Biden and, and his team, including you and Buttigieg, have been negotiating this bill for the Democrats. And Senator uh, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Republican, has been negotiating for the Republicans. If that falls apart, there is a plan B. There is this separate group, a bipartisan coalition of senators that include Joe Manchin, who we've been talking about, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney, Bill Cassidy, Kirsten Sinema. Uh, it's a bipartisan group working on a separate infrastructure plan. They could reveal that as soon as this week. Are you optimistic about what this group might come up with? Is President Biden going to be willing to meet with them before or after talks with Capito, uh, end. Of course, he is willing to meet with anyone who will help to move this forward. The, you know, the clock is ticking. 
there is a, an end point to this discussion. But it is important and great and hopeful that the Republicans that you've just described are also taking a look at it. And perhaps there can be a meshing of efforts. So that was an, a really, really great explanation from Jake Tapper and something that I didn't hear from Chuck Todd, who also had an interview with Jennifer Granholm. That sounds similar to what I heard on this week with uh, Secretary Raimundo from uh, Commerce. Wow. So we had three secretaries on to discuss it and not a lot and by not a lot, I mean, basically no Republican voices, at least in the three shows that I covered. Republican voices? No, you're right. I, I didn't have anybody either. Yeah, very fascinating. And, and I should say Manchin was on as well, talking about this issue, among others. Finally, I wanted to highlight Granholm once again, making some really, really strong arguments in her case for the Biden administration and also for bipartisanship. This was a genuine argument saying, look, Republicans, you should work with us on these issues. And she had a whole list. Take a listen. The thing is, it's just uh, a bit perplexing why the Republicans haven't moved further on critical pieces. And I'll just say this, in my world, in the energy space, Republicans have pushed for pieces of the energy infrastructure that the president had put into the American Jobs Plan that are not in their counteroffer. For example, they've been talking about investing in the transmission grid. That's infrastructure, both making it more resilient, making it cyber-proof, expanding capacity. That's not in their counteroffer. They've been talking about expanding and supporting nuclear. That was in the president's plan. It's not in their plan. They've been talking about, I just came from West Virginia, touring West Virginia with, with Joe Manchin. There are so, there's so much despair there in terms of loss of fossil fuel jobs. So the president put in his plan the ability for, for workers like uh, coal miners to be able to be put to work in reclaiming abandoned coal mines and oil and gas wells. The Republicans have talked about that. They have voted for it. Mm -hmm. That's not in their bill. And that it, it's not in their counterproposal, including removing carbon pollution from fossil fuel industries by, by putting pipes underground to take that carbon pollution and store it underground. Those are all infrastructure plays Republicans have voted for and talked about. It was in Biden's plan. It's mm -hmm. not in there. So it's just curious yeah. why, why there isn't more coming together. So what a great way to use specifics again and again and again to make the point for both Biden's position and also why Republicans should join into that position. Just a really, really excellent interview technique from Secretary Granholm. And I saw her make a very similar argument on Meet the Press. Yeah, I think most importantly, I think Jennifer Granholm here does a really effective job talking about how Republicans are now claiming they are not supportive of things that they have previously said were priorities. And I think if they can make this case more regularly or the Democrats are saying, yeah, if Democrats or the Biden administration specifically can underscore this, I think will go a long way. Yeah, there was another moment that I really liked from an interview with Granholm today. It was in Meet the Press. I don't have the clip for it. But basically, on the issue of cybersecurity, Granholm was asked if she believed that companies should be forbidden from paying ransoms to reduce the risk of ransomware. And she said, oh, yeah, I think absolutely they should not be allowed to pay ransoms. 
But that's just my opinion. I mean, I don't I don't know what President Biden's position is on that or other Democrats. But but yeah, they shouldn't. I was like, how refreshing for somebody who works for the administration to actually provide their opinion. And I famously remember time and again, when another administration official to the Trump administration in this instance, and I'm thinking of specifically former National Security Advisor John Bolton, time and again being presented with his own personal opinions in previous editorials, asking about his personal opinion while he was National Security Advisor and saying, look, this isn't about me. It's about the Trump administration. It's not about how I feel. But I do appreciate someone just saying, yeah, here's, I'll answer you straight up. Here's what I think. It was kind of refreshing. I don't know if it's going to give them plaudits when they're dealing with the White House press secretary, but as a viewer, it is refreshing. Naomi, what did you have to say about journalism? Or what did you see about journalism? So I just wanted to talk briefly about an interview that I saw on Fox News Sunday when Chris Wallace interviewed Corey Lewandowski. Corey Lewandowski is a former campaign manager for President Trump. Wasn't he like indicted and put in prison for something? I don't think Lewandowski. I think Lewandowski in 2016 shoved someone and then there was an arrest of some kind. But no, I don't think he was. He he has the lesser crimes of all of Trump staff. But now he is managing a super PAC for President Trump or that parallels. I shouldn't say for President Trump because PACs are not allowed to coordinate with candidates. But he represents a super PAC that is in favor of President Trump. Anyway, I just thought (laughs) the reason I made this uh, something about journalism is that Chris Wallace kind of believes none of Lewandowski's bullshit. And it was... (laughs) An interesting choice for Lewandowski to come on when I feel like most of the interview undermined the little credibility that Lewandowski already has. Take a listen to this first question, and then we'll play the quick follow-up where Chris Wallace questions Donald Trump's current criticisms about China when he did very little when he was still in office. Mr. Trump also went hard after Dr. Anthony Fauci, which raises the question, if he was so concerned about the Wuhan lab, why didn't Mr. Trump do more to investigate it? Why didn't didn't he do more to put pressure on the Chinese when he was president? Well, Chris, as we know, Secretary Pompeo uh, was very involved in trying to find the origins of the COVID-19 virus and where it came from. What we also know now, Chris, is that over 600, almost 600,000 Americans have perished because of this terrible tragedy. That's more people than all of the foreign wars that the United States soldiers combined have been lost in. That's the equivalent of about the size of the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've lost more people than reside in Baltimore or in Miami or in Atlanta, Georgia. And we don't even have a commission to look into this. Yeah, but, but uh, Corey, back as late as March 27th, so at least two months after Donald Trump was warned by his own national security advisor that this was going to be the greatest threat of his presidency and proceeded to play it down, as late as March 27th of last year, Donald Trump was still praising President Xi of China and still talking about how cooperative he was. Again, if he was so concerned about the Wuhan lab, if he wanted, he had the opportunity as president, why didn't he get tough with China then when he had the opportunity? 
Well, Chris, we were listening to what, what the media has defined as the experts, and Dr. Fauci specifically. And you know oh, that Dr. Oh, Fauci well, was on, against Corey, banning Corey, flights Corey, coming in Corey. from mainland China. You're, you're, wait a minute. Chris. You're telling me that the president, what, you're, you're going to blame the president's inaction on Dr. Fauci? No, but we, look, Chris, if we're going to follow the science and listen to Dr. Fauci, which has been, he has been lifted up by the media as the foremost expert on this matter in the world. Chris Wallace goes on to eviscerate Corey Lewandowski specifically, and he claims that the media had anything to do with it. And no, clearly it's the media. The, the media's media is fault. I mean, like, it's so interesting how in, in defending President Trump, his surrogates have to make him look and sounds so weak, like he wasn't the freaking president. And I think Koi Lewandowski falls prey to that in this interview with Chris Wallace, and Chris Wallace has zero interest in placating those those desires to make President Trump seem like a aggrieved president. So you may have heard on your shows, Brendan, but this weekend, former President Donald Trump kind of gave like a Republican campaign speech. I think it was North Carolina, might have been South Carolina. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of talk about it on the three shows I covered. Oh, it came up in both of my shows. And there was also some news coverage that supposedly President Trump believes he will be reinstated back as president this summer. And <laughs> reinstated as president? Correct. What? Take a listen to how Chris Wallace asked the question and Corey Lewandowski's answer. And according to a number of reports from across the political spectrum, various news outlets from the New York Times to the National Review, he has told uh, people around him recently that he believes he will be reinstated as president by August. Corey, can you please explain to our viewers under what provision of law or the Constitution President Trump can be reinstated as president? Sure, Chris, and I can tell you, I've spoken to the president dozens, if not more than 100 times since uh, he has left the White House. And, and the president and I have never had that conversation about him being reinstated. So I can't specifically comment on what he has said to other individuals because it hasn't been a conversation I've had with him. And I know of no provision under the Constitution that allows that to occur, nor do I know of any provision under the Constitution that allows an individual who lost an election uh, to come back in if a recount is dubbed uh, inaccurate. It's so funny because I saw headlines about this, about Trump reinstated by the summer or whatever. I thought he meant on Facebook, like his account back yeah, on like Facebook. Yeah, like his Facebook account. And reinstated. I was like, the man must be crazy because they just announced that it's going to be two years that he's not on Facebook. But he's even crazier than that. And We're not talking yes. about Facebook anymore. He wants to be back in the Oval Office by August. But, <laughs> I mean, Corey Lewandowski has, like, a really poorly executed pivot here where that from there, from this answer, he goes and talks about the media again. But I just thought, like, clearly he's there kind of representing his super PAC and has to kind of outright deny any credibility to this claim that President Trump is going to be reinstated by August. But it's just, <laughs> it, it's almost like the question is so good. Like what, you know, where is this possible essentially? That Corey Lewandowski's like, listen, I don't know. This guy is crazy. I'm just here trying to tell people that he deserves to be president. Just comes off so insane. I guess in a purely 
personal institutional way, Lewandowski, any sort of reinstatement as president would mean Lewandowski doesn't need a job anymore because you don't need to raise money for an election if you're just going to be reinstated in the summer. So I could see why Lewandowski wouldn't want to uh, get on the reinstatement train bandwagon, whatever it is. Fantasy? All of the above. So anyway, just to close out, Chris Wallace does a great job doing this interview. I'm a little confused as to why Corinne Lewandowski was invited on to begin with. Yeah, but that's a good question. You, I think because he wanted to ask that question to him. I guess so. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, Chris Wallace clearly can't stand anyone from the Trump campaign. I'm curious as to the benefits of campaign officials going on at this point. Brendan, what's your something about journalism you want to talk about? So as I hinted to earlier, I wanted to talk about the cyber crime issue, the ransomware attack that took place against against Colonial Pipeline, uh, among others. And I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about those others, because Chuck Todd does an excellent job at the start of his episode in framing the episode as being very much about this topic. Take a listen to how he began the show. Last week, it was the world's largest beef supplier. A month ago, Colonial Pipeline, supplying roughly 45% of the East Coast fuel, paid a $4.4 million ransom to Russian hackers in Bitcoin after they accessed its system with a compromised password. Our Justice Department has launched a new task force dedicated to prosecuting ransomware hackers to the full extent of the law. Ransomware attacks have become routine, hitting everything from groceries to gas, hospitals to transportation to local government. The largest public transit authority in the United States has fallen victim to a cyber attack. Headaches for the Steamship Authority continue today following a ransomware attack. UF Health is the target of a ransomware attack. The FBI confirms to NBC News it is investigating 100 different types of ransomware, each responsible for multiple attacks in the U.S., many originating from Russia. It's a challenge director Christopher Ray compares to 9-11. We're one step away from cities being plunged into darkness, and that is not fear and uncertainty. That's based on facts. So this is an important introduction in reminding people that this isn't just an isolated incident, and it really is a way for the show to make the case for why they've decided to dedicate the majority of the episode in talking about this issue. And... In talking about it, there were lots of voices, and I want to highlight just a few of them, partly for what we heard from the subject of the interview, but largely for the focus and the engagement that Chuck Todd brought to the conversation. And throughout the episode, Chuck Todd does an excellent job in trying to zoom into what are the pivot points of this issue. How could this issue possibly be effectively addressed? And he goes through from the cyber perspective to the policy perspective, to the Bitcoin and payment perspective, to the Russia perspective. For example, here is how he asked Senator Mark Warner, Democratic Senator from the state of Virginia, about Russia's role. Because as you remember, Colonial Pipeline, their systems were hacked from Russia. And there is a large contingent in Russia that is hacking all of these companies and putting their systems up for ransom. All right, there's one other idea out there, and it's about going on more on the offensive against Russia for being a safe harbor and for doing what they did. But I want to show you something here. 
I hope you can see this graphic. These are all the different ways the United States has tried to confront Russian aggression. Going back to 2014, we've ejected them from the from the G7, right? It's not the G8 anymore. Plenty of sanctions. There have been import restrictions. We've expelled diplomats. We've seized their assets. We've had indictments. None of it has stopped his behavior. What what would it take, do you think, to curtail Putin's behavior here? Well, two things, Chuck. One, I do think we need to have the ability to use some of our offensive capabilities. And we have done a better job on that. If we look at um, our ability to cut back on some of the uh, Russian election interference, that was because uh, we were willing to punch back. But what we also need, and this is why I see we need these level of international norms so that a country like Russia would know if they are harboring cyber criminals and you're shutting down a healthcare system, for example, the way these cyber criminals did in Ireland recently, there needs to be international repercussions, not simply one off uh, the United States acting alone. That's why President Biden going and rallying the democracies at the G7 meeting is so important. So once again, what a great way to frame the issue, not only for the audience, but also for the subject of the interview. The guests themselves. The guests themselves, right, to say, look, Senator Warner, don't say that, oh, we just need to punish Russia. Look at all these ways. Here's a graphic for you that the punishment hasn't worked. So why should we believe it's going to work this time? I think this is absolutely the kind of accountability that we need to be asking these political leaders. We need to be bringing to their face and say, look, we're not going to be satisfied with the same old answers and the same old again and again and again, like, you know, easy solutions. Like, don't come on the show expecting that you're just going to say a few happy words about, oh, we're going to punish Russia, and that's going to be enough. Right. And I think it simplifies a very complicated issue with layering complicated relationships and is not very truly informational to the viewers themselves. And I think the other thing I wanted to note about this, and maybe you saw this on your shows, Brendan, but it seemed to me at least in the interview with Secretary Raimundo, was that they're not expecting this to be solved right away, but they want the American people to feel like this administration is actively working on it. And if you want people to trust your judgment that you're going to be doing a good job, you have to inform them how complicated the issue is and then give them updates on how the issue's being worked on, right? I feel like... yeah. They're saying, like, we're on it. We're going to make Russia deal with it. And the problem is, if Russia doesn't deal with it, then it seems like you got nothing done. And so it's really, really important that the administration take the time to explain how hard this issue is, to explain all the different ways they're going to work or protect or force private companies to kind of beef up their cybersecurity. Like, you need to kind of show the different range of options in dealing with this issue because... Just forcing Russia to pay for it is an easy answer that is very difficult to make happen. And so unless you want people to trust that it is being worked on, you have to kind of show the full breadth of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they're starting to do that. You know, Jennifer Granholm, and I don't have the clip here, but she mentioned that actually there are requirements for you know, electricity companies to have cybersecurity capabilities. Those requirements are not in place for pipelines. 
which is why we saw what happened uh, took place the way that it did with Colonial Pipeline, but those should be in there. Now, one issue that came up multiple... Oh, and I do want to note that Senator Warner's answer here is a good one as well. It's saying, look, we're, we're trying something different with Russia, and that is rallying other democracies together to face countries that provide a safe harbor to these illegal ransomware hackers. They're going to face real consequences from a united front of countries, not just one. So that is, that is, that is a good answer. Hopefully it does something. Now, Related to the companies themselves, Chuck Todd went back and forth with both Senator Warner and Republican Senator Roy Blunt about the role of companies in all of this. Take a listen to this really strong back and forth between Chuck Todd and Senator Blunt. On one question you ask uh, uh, Chairman Warner, could we say that companies have to guarantee their system uh, to be a U.S. vendor or whatever the right. other guarantee might be. The truth is we haven't, we haven't been able to, to guarantee our own system. You know, on the solar winds, they got in the government system as well. We didn't know where they were there. Right. We don't know how long they were there. We're not absolutely sure they're not there still. Uh, and so, you know, saying that companies would have to meet a standard we can't meet would be one thing. So we've worked hard on this, both in Intel and in the Republican Policy Committee, yeah. trying to alert companies, but also our, our own colleagues, of how broad the danger could be here. And well, uh, I, I'm glad this is getting the attention it's now finally getting. It took gasoline look, and beef. Well, that's right. Uh, and it's, it's when it hits, this is really a serious problem. That's right. No, when it hits, the, when it hits people at home. And that, I think this is one of those things. This feels like a crime wave. And you guys are supposed to keep us safe, right? You're, you're our elected officials. You guys got to keep us safe. So I guess I want to push back on this idea that you, you can't hold business to a standard that the government can't meet. Well, why can't everybody be mm-hmm. mandated to meet this standard? I understand what you're saying about the government. But the 2012 cybersecurity bill, it, one of the reasons it didn't pass is because there was this debate. You were asking too much of private, private sector. I think that was one of the reasons you were not ready to support it then. Shouldn't we be asking American business to do more? Well, I, I don't remember the 2012 cybersecurity bill. I do remember at that same time, Senator Carper and I were actually leading the effort to try to have reporting as part of the requirement. So here, once again, in the theme of accountability, Chuck Todd saying outright, you're our elected officials. You guys are supposed to keep us safe. So I'm going to push back on the idea that you can't hold businesses to a standard for cybersecurity. I think that is just a very important statement. It's basically saying, don't come on here and say that your argument is, well, we can't ask something of people if it's too hard. It's like, that's, that's, that's not a valid argument when it comes to the security, national security issues. This seems more concrete than what I heard from Secretary Raimundo on this week it seemed still so vague they were considering i think she said all options or you know all options are on the table or that the administration was considering all options in protecting the private sector and it seems to me senators democratic and republican like roy blunt should be open to all options yeah there definitely seems to be a way more serious conversation around this than we have ever seen in the past And I do think this analogy of it being like 9-11, 
is going to really reshape the way people think about this. Because if we remember, you know, when 9-11 happened, the reaction of the government itself wasn't just about going to war in Afghanistan and then that war expanding on to Iraq and, and all that. It changed the shape of the U.S. government. It changed the way that we went to the airports. It basically created an entirely new department, a new federal department. You know, a president, George W. Bush, who campaigned on the idea of government being too big, was responsible for the largest expansion of the federal government since I think it was LBJ, right? So those types of things, those structural changes are probably pretty close to being in the works right now to deal with these cyber issues that span, as we mentioned in just our conversation here, Naomi, so many different departments today, from DHS to energy to commerce. And now finally, we're hearing that efforts are going to be brought together at the criminal justice level to treat it the way that they treat terrorism issues. Lots to monitor for sure. Yeah, and lots to look at how these journalists, because this is the journalism segment, are doing in both framing the issue as multifaceted and trying to hold those in power accountable for doing their job. As Chuck Todd states here, keeping us safe. And that's it for Polylogue this week. And every week we encourage you to make your dialogue count. Naomi, do you have a dialogue challenge this week? I have an interesting dialogue challenge. So last week we had a special episode. So the last time we recorded a recent, you know, kind of like fresh episode was two weeks ago. And I was shocked to find so much of the shows pretty much in the same spot that we left them in two weeks ago. And I would encourage our listeners to think about a conversation that has stalled or seems like isn't making any progress and just kind of reflect like what is stalling it is it not that every conversation is absolution but is it one party you know one side one one part of the conversation kind of wants to disengage is it too hard is it kind of are you going in circles like what is the thing that is making a conversation seem stalled because boy i was looking forward to uh, some new news and we're in the same place that we were for the most part, on and off, with the exception of the cybersecurity, as that we were two weeks ago. So in your own life, conversations that have stalled or, or repeated without yeah, a lot of Yeah, maybe progress. it's at work and you're kind of talking about the same weird issue or <laughs> same yeah. weird client mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be. Kind well, of Can ju- we break out of this? How do yeah, we like how this? do we get out of this rut? That's a good one. I like that. It's something we haven't talked about before. If you have any breakthroughs, you are welcome to share them with us. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bsteidel, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.